1: Our conversation begins. Il Postino, the postman, is over. Our smiles spread like butterflies.
0: Mario was a humble postman who lived a simple life on a small Italian island. For years, he loved Beatrice, but he just didn't know how to tell her. Until Pablo Neruda, the famous poet and world-renowned romantic, moved in. Now this great man is about to teach him that every moment has its meaning.
1: He puts the lotion in the basket. (laughs) Jeez! I think Neruda wrote that. I think he did, or else she puts the lotion on her skin. Or else she gets the hose again. Classic Naruda.
0: I think you're right. I, I remember reading that in the Don't book you? of love poetry. <laughs> hey,
1: if you want more fantastic quips like that,
0: where should you go, Andy? There's so many places to go, Pete. But Instagram is a great place to start. You can check out all of our posts that we have over there. We've got a lot of posts about the movies we're talking about each week, about other movies. There's just a whole variety of things we have. All of our new hosts, everybody kind of every week we do a host pick of the week. So there's a lot of things you can do over on Instagram. Just follow us at The Next Reel. And uh, another great place is to jump into our Discord channel, which you can find over at TheNextReel.com. And you can jump into our Discord group and join the conversation with everybody else talking about the movie we're talking about right now and all sorts of other movies.
1: And, and you know what else you could do? You could join our membership program through patreon.com slash the next reel. And I only bring it up because, A, it is a way for you to directly support this show with your dollars. If you like what we've been doing for the last nay, nine years, uh, we would love your support. And you could join people like just this morning, Captain America became a patron
0: of. I'm surprised that he beat Tony Stark. It's I am Star actually surprised
1: as well, and I'm thrilled to see that we have Avengers support uh, for
0: our little show. Who knew? Who knew? I love that. I love mm-hmm. that. So yeah, come hang out with us. We're always us. We'd looking love to see you. we're always looking to come up with new things to offer our members. And uh, so yeah, just kind of uh, become a member and uh, you'll find out over on Discord all the things that we offer and it's it's just a great thing to kind of help us keep things moving and really it's just I kind of have a great time having conversations with all of the uh, other fans of the show. It comes to join the Instagram or else it eats a big fat ham.
1: Classic Naruda. <laughs> All right, Andy. Let's talk about this movie. Um, You know, it's adorable. Is that (laughs) does that minimize my feelings about this movie? It's just
0: so cute.
1: Come on, it's
0: very, it's very sweet. Very kind of. uh, I don't. It it is just a very kind of pure little story. I I really do enjoy it.
1: It's it's a it's a romantic. uh, We call it a romantic comedy. An Italian romantic comedy. Did you laugh enough for it to be a comedy?
0: Is that is it a romantic comedy? Is that what you'd call it? Well, I don't know. I guess it kind I, of
1: is. I kind of struggle with that because it it you know uh, it's also it's also got a fantastic uh, union riot, so it could be a labor movie. <laughs> <laughs> Although brief, it would have fit.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, IMDb calls it a biography, comedy, drama. I guess biography because it's based there's a real character in it, even though it's not really based on his life. Well, uh, yeah, that's strange to me. Let's IMDb. just
1: clear the air there. So uh, the, the movie, it does have a fictionalized version of Pablo Neruda, the uh, poet and activist and one time statesman to uh, Spain, I think. Chile. Uh, ch- ch- it would, so be, it for, would be for, for totally Chile. No, no, no. For <laughs> Chile to Spain. Uh and, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh and so he was um he was quite an activist. He was a um uh, he held several diplomatic posts uh for on behalf of Chile uh in and out of um, uh, Argentina and Spain. Uh and was he got himself in trouble uh, a, a lot because he was very outspoken and political and in fact he did at one point uh move to Italy. Uh, with, with his lover as his marriage was crumbling. And that is where the, uh, the fictional Pablo Neruda in this film kicks in. I think that happens very early in the movie, early enough in the movie that it does not count as a biopic.
0: Yeah, I think it's a stretch to call it a biopic, because it's not even about him. I mean, it's no. it's a fictionalized, and honestly, it's so fictionalized that if you talk to anyone who knows anything about Pablo Neruda, I'm not really one of them. But generally, people who are will say, this is all bunk. Yeah. There's nothing here that really lines up with anything in Neruda's life. And so I think IMDb should pull biography off of the label for this particular film. Far Comedy, drama, way. sure.
1: I'm going to go with comedy drama. And the the romantic part, I I actually don't know who the romance is between. Is it between uh, 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 Ruopolo and Beatrice or is it between him and Neruda? Uh, He's got a serious Pablo crush. In this movie. And it's delightful because he is dopey and charming and clumsy and uh, and uh, just truly, truly lovable. Uh, And even more so after reading, seeing the movie and then reading his story uh about how he you know made the movie and and his enthusiasm for the movie and his sad sad end
0: yeah really tragic very tragic um it's it's a thrill that that he was able to kind of get this passion project off the ground even if it uh essentially meant his death it was a tragic story about Massimo Troisi the actor and uh who plays Mario and really kind of brought this project to life before before we get go too far down the um the story of massimo and kind of the creation of this film let's just kind of take a step back and look at you know some of these bigger questions about this particular series that we're in we're looking at foreign language films nominated for best picture this it's been 21 years since the last foreign film was nominated for best picture which was cries and whispers which we talked about last week it is now uh 95 and here we are or sorry 94 and here we are with this film being nominated. Do you feel, okay, it's, it's a weird question, but were there that many good English language films from 1973 to 1995 that no foreign films were good enough to be nominated? Were they just not as good? Or, I mean, and this is kind of, I, you know, I don't think we'll be able to answer this. Was there a prevailing feeling in Hollywood? You know, like let's just focus on on you know English movies. I, I, I don't know if there's a, a good answer for that, but uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, I I don't know. I think there is this this sort of consistent and pervasive kind of Reagan era geocentrism. Uh, At work throughout the 80s, the kind of late 70s, 80s, you know, early 90s, and maybe that has something to do with it sort of the cultural context. There's also, I, I think, an entertainment political context at work here where, you know, minimizing foreign films to their category is something that. Elevates sort of Hollywood productions, right? US productions. And, um, you know, I think there was, there was more of a, a sense during that period of like, let's celebrate what we have made, right? Let's make this yeah. about us. Uh, and also let's not forget Cries and Whispers was a tough watch. Maybe everyone was just plumb hung over from having picked <laughs> an incredibly depressing film. <laughs> And they just took a 20-year <laughs> break.
0: Like <laughs> We need, need to step back the, from these Bergman right, sorts of movies.
1: Then that Il, Il Postino is the, like adorable and sort of just fluffy and uh, just sort of celebrating uh, the joy of love and kind of substance light. Uh, is is uh, I wonder? Like, and I actually wrote in my notes, like, how much does adorable count toward awardable? And and I wonder if we're going to be talking about <laughs> that again. That that there is this sense of oh, this is so cute, and I don't have to work very hard at it, uh, and it, that must mean it's great. Well,
0: it makes uh, me feel so two. Two things that I think that that um, brings me to. One, we're absolutely going to have to start talking about Miramax, uh, yeah. which <laughs> we'll get into that for sure. Uh, two in context of Best Picture, what does it really mean for that award? Does it make sense for these smaller films like this? And I mean, it happens all the time. It's not like some obscure thing that this film happened to be this small film that got nominated. It mm-hmm. certainly picked up in the 90s into the 2000s. I was, as we started seeing some, like, there was always kind of like the token indie film thrown in. That was like something that really caught people's hearts. But was it Best Picture? And it's like, what's what does it mean to be a Best Picture? I, I, I you know, I I think it's fine. Yes, for a small film to be noticed, but does it there need to be more to it to say, hey, this is actually a best picture, not just best script, not just best performances, best direction. What is it to really mean best picture?
1: Yeah, and that's a great question. And I don't know that you can actually answer that question unless you talk about it in the context of the other films that it's nominated against. Do you want to just run through the list quickly and we'll talk about the award standing later?
0: The films nominated for best picture this year uh, were Apollo 13. Babe, Braveheart, which won, and Sense and Sensibility, along with this. Mm -hmm. This film did not get nominated for Best Foreign Language Film uh, because Italy submitted a different film, which was called The Star Maker. Giuseppe Tornatore directed that film. He had a big splash with Cinema Paradiso a few years before, and my hunch is that they felt like, let's get him in again, even though The Star Maker was, I didn't think, a great film uh, Antonia's Line One Best Foreign Language Film. All Things Fair, Dust of Life, and O Quatrilu were the other nominees for Best Foreign Language Film. Not a very strong lineup of foreign language films this particular year. And let me just run a few other films that came out this year. Seven, 12 Monkeys, Toy Story, Dead Man Walking, Leaving Las Vegas, Heat, The American President, Get Shorty, Before Sunrise, Casino, My Family, Me Familia. There's another uh, film with an <laughs> right. English-Spanish title. Uh, the City of Lost Children, Nixon, Richard III, Mighty Aphrodite. Yeah. Strong year. Strong A lot of strong year. films. <laughs> right. This is the film that uh, was the little film that snuck into the best, best picture. And I guess you could argue Babe also. Yeah. Kind of, uh, you know, the the kind of obscure thing getting nominated. So I don't know. I mean, I I struggle with the idea of best picture and what it really means. And I think this is why a lot of people become really frustrated with the Oscars and with awards in general, because it's less about what's really the best picture of the year. What's the film that's actually going to still be remembered 20 years down the road? Instead, it becomes which film had the most marketing behind it in that particular year, the money to kind of push for those awards, nominations and wins. And I think that's the thing that people really get frustrated with.
1: Well, and to confuse voters, right? I mean, and this this film is an, a great example of that. That is, you know, this one is simple and small and cute and wonderful. And there are so many other great, heavy, big films that they just don't know what to do. And this one stands out like a bright, shining light. Um, and so it's, it's easy to vote. For this one, I think, and also you kind of like, if I put myself in the head of like a voter having seen all those movies, I think, oh, you know, I'm gonna. This is gonna be my statement vote. This was such a great vote, a great film, and has so much heart. I'm gonna vote to this. I'm gonna make a statement. I'm gonna, you know, tell people I voted for the small movie. (laughs) I just sort of feel (laughs) feel that sense of of uh, you know, you're doing a you're doing a good thing for the little right uh but and i think you know we we sort of buried the lead a little bit about uh massimo do you think his story right losing his life after post-production um you know suffering through uh, his heart condition during the production of the film right do you think that story then plays into the kind of economics of
0: award choice I absolutely do. And I think that's the sort of thing that, you Now, I guess we may as well talk about Miramax and the marketing machine behind them, uh, that they really started pushing right around this time. I mean, Miramax really started, they started in the 70s, I think, 1980, they really started distributing films. And a lot of what they latched on to was foreign films that they would acquire to kind of rework a little bit to fit American sensibilities and the audiences. That's really really kind of how they started and they continue that even after Disney purchased them in the early 90s uh, like right before all of this they were marketing like my left foot in i think 88 89 90 91 somewhere right around there well that was like one of the first big pushes that Harvey Weinstein had and that i was mean bananas. he said this, i remember
1: i remember the marketing push more than the
0: movie he, Yeah, I mean, he had Daniel Day-Lewis go speak to, like, the Senate Committee on Disabilities Act. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the sort of marketing that he was using to really kind of push these things. Uh, Weinstein had this to say in uh, Peter Biskin's book, Down in Dirty Pictures. In those days, the studios had a lock on the Oscars because none of the indies campaigned aggressively. The only thing that we did to change the rules was, rather than just sitting it out and getting beat because somebody has more money, more power, more influence, we ran a guerrilla campaign. And then uh, Biskind went on to say this meant putting on meet and greet events where Academy members could meet Miramax film talent. Weinstein even convinced director Jim Sheridan and producer Noel Pearson to move to L.A. from Ireland so they could more easily attend such gatherings for uh, my left foot. And so they were this huge, aggressive Oscar campaigner. They actually got in trouble for Il Postino because they were sending uh, overly elaborate packaging with the videotape of the movie. And I I guess they lost their Oscar tickets because the Academy found this to be a little too aggressive. But, I mean, they spent upwards of $7 million on Oscar ads for this this film, which is almost twice the film's budget. It's just nuts. And, I mean, the soundtrack that they released, which we'll talk about that in a little bit, I mean, it was full of poetry by Neruda read by celebrities like uh, like Glenn Close and Julia Roberts and Samuel L. Jackson and Ethan Hawke and Sting. I mean, it's it was a huge thing that people fell in love with. I mean, they they pushed the Neruda stuff. Like, they they released books of Neruda's poetry. <laughs> they did everything they could to make people fall in love with Neruda, with poetry, with love stories like this. And and with Massimo's story that was absolutely something that they pushed like everybody knew this poor guy died 12 hours after the film uh, the uh, principal photography wrapped it was, i mean and and people that story i think is what tugged at people's hearts yeah. and got the vote for this film
1: do you get a sense that the uh that the uh, just general angst around Miramax's uh m- marketing efforts was as frustrating then to audiences as it is now that so many of these stories have come out uh,
0: in the wake of the dissolution of the Weinsteins? I don't think it was quite as frustrating yet. I think it was definitely in the news. Mm -hmm. I think this was a, a talking point that people were beginning to... Chat about because it was something that definitely was noticed. It was like, who are these guys that are all of a sudden like like everywhere when it comes to marketing these things? Mm-hmm. I think we're gonna have a much different conversation about this in next week's show when we're talking about Life is Beautiful, right. because that is when it was at a point that it, it almost people were like feeling like it was a little uh too much because of the way that it led to things happening at the Oscars.
1: Yeah, there is a there's definitely a second chapter. Uh, to uh, Miramax, even when it was still Miramax uh, that we'll need to right, talk about right. next week. So uh, anyway, uh, all that is to say, this is it, this is a fine movie. But where do we come down finally on is this a is this a best, best picture movie?
0: You know, I, I love the poetry. I totally fell in love with this film when I saw it. I loved uh, it It introduced me to Pablo Neruda and and what he had written, the the film is just just sumptuous and, and just kind of very sweet. Like you've said, it's adorable. There's this passion to it. I don't think it's best picture quality. I think that it's a fine film. Um, I enjoy it, but I think there are far better films that should have been nominated. I would say if I if you look at the lineup for best foreign language film, I really I watched all of those in preparation for this as well. Antonio's line, yeah, I liked that one. Dust of Life, I think it's kind of an important film. Uquatrilio. that was a really interesting one. Drop All Things Fair and drop The Star Maker off of the list. Just, you know, not films that should be on there. Put this film on there. Put The City of Lost Children on there. Mm-hmm. Both of those films are far more worth it being put on the best foreign language film than as best picture. So yeah, that would be what yeah. I would uh, my rewrite of history.
1: Talking about the film itself. Um, yeah, it, it has this sweet little fable kind of love story vibe to it, um, it, it, it that Talking about uh, Troisi's character, right, as as the postman, there is there is um, a, a sense of wonder that he brings to this character. He, it, he doesn't want to be the fisher, fisherman's son. He doesn't want to take up his dad's uh, role. He wants to do something with, with more meaning in his life. And so he just goes out, and he tries to find a job, and he gets the job of being a a postman, a postal delivery worker for the one house in this area, which is Neruda's house. Bring Neruda his fan mail. Neruda has just landed here. Uh, Bring him his fan mail. And over the course of this relationship, our our hero here discovers that he wants to be a poet. And he makes a dramatic, nay, overnight transition from being the kind of schleppy doofus to having an incredible way with words uh this is a superhero origin story of the ages for poets because he's great (laughs) i fell in love with him from his poetry beatrice never had a chance
0: Right, the thing about this film that I think is interesting, and this is why I struggle with calling it like a romance or a love story. I, I definitely think that's a part of it, but I don't think that's what the story is. I think this is a story about a person who is lost. They they have not figured out who they are. It's like they're unmolded clay, and because of this this catalyst that happens in this particular case, meeting Pablo Neruda and reading his words and 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 clicking with with poetry and metaphors and all of this stuff and all of a sudden having this world opened to him of a, of a way to see things that he had never seen mm-hmm. it, it's a story of a person finding himself and and you know yes he's able to find love but i mean he gets married pretty quick i, I wouldn't say it's a love story right He he gets married pretty quick he has he, he has a kid like he's he's got his own life but it's really about finding that passion within your life and that's what it is i mean he he is able to start standing up to this, this, I guess you would say, fairly corrupt politician who's kind of running the island mm-hmm. and becomes an outspoken, I, I don't know if he's quite an activist in the communist circles, but he certainly is one who goes to the rallies and is there to read poetry, his own poetry at one of these rallies when he's uh, killed in in uh, um, uh, police um I guess, a police attack. Yeah. I don't know what you'd call it, but yeah. I, I feel like it's a story about finding yourself and through these words that Neruda wrote. And Neruda, I think it's important that he was the one who was picked because he is a poet who wrote amazing love stories, but also was a very political figure. He was in the communist circles and he wrote just as much in those circles as he did about love.
1: Exactly, in in so many ways. And this is like the, the traditional... Uh... Shazam story, right? It's like Mario says Shazam and becomes Pablo Neruda. Oh, <laughs>
0: right.
1: That would be a story. Uh, it It is, uh, Neruda becomes the vessel for unlocking the true identity of our hero, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's the transformation we're looking at, and that's why, you know, in, in the beginning I, I said it's it's a little bit confusing when you watch this because, you know, there is this traditional, like, sort of lusty love story that Mario wants uh, to, to get with Beatrice, uh, but also his true attention and the the most of the narrative of the story we know how the the sort of traditional romance is going to play out like you say it happens pretty quickly um that that we have this sort of threshold guardian in the ante who is delightful uh who who <laughs> wants to who says you know if he if he has any more words for my uh niece i'm gonna shoot him <laughs> <laughs> it's just really beautiful. Um, but that doesn't last. That's not something that he he is not able to transcend. The harder lessons for him are the the lessons, like you say, of being able to see the world in a way that he had never seen before that allow him to relate to the world in a more sophisticated, more nuanced way to understand what's going on. The, the, the Mario in the beginning of the film would not have been able to stand up to the corrupt politician because he would not have been able to see with any nuance, with any with a critical eye what was actually happening to his fair city uh, about their water mains and that is a that is a deeply political issue that is so subtle in this movie uh that it's it's pretty easy to miss
0: well and, and i think it speaks to the nature of the people on the island right i think you see that in his father who has very little interest in everything except uh eating and fishing and just doesn't see anything beyond that. And to that extent, that's how everybody on the island lives. Right. They are very much kind of like a much more basic level of of people. It's it's almost like just like the, the animalistic um, base level where it's just survival. Mm-hmm. I'm going to eat my food and I'm going to go catch my fish. And that's like all he can see. And that's what's so great about some of these little scenes that you see where Mario is starting to see these things, right? He's looking at this postcard from, I I think it may be his brothers or something, who is off in America or Mm -hmm. something, and he's just like, he's fascinated by other things. And his dad is just like, uh yeah, grum, go you need to work you know and it's like he just has nothing to say there's nothing there for him right. the aunt my favorite line of hers was i'd prefer a drunkard at the bar touching your bum to someone who says your smile flies like a <laughs> butterfly like it's, it's so funny that they, they want to stay. And it, it's interesting because later Neruda, when they hear him on the news after, or in an interview in the newspaper after he's left the island, um, he talks about how it was so nice to be there and just be with the simple people. And it it really hits Mario in a way where it's like, you're talking about me, you're talking about everybody here. And I think Mario may have identified with the simple people thing until he met Neruda and now he's changing. He really has opened up like a butterfly. And now here he is. It's like he's not the one who who is a simple person anymore. And I, I think that that's a really interesting element that the story has is this whole idea of right place, right time. Mario... He probably had this in him his whole life, but has never had a way to develop it at all. It was only because of this, uh, you know, kind of coming, uh, the arrival of Neruda that all of a sudden things were able to shift with him. And I just, I think that that was a really interesting element of the story. Yeah,
1: I mean that that's the whole concept of this using this this character to unlock the the sort of deeper sort of secret understanding of powers that have been so limited by context culture and family. Uh, and I think it's I think it's really powerful. We we also have, you know, what comes with Naruda is that he's, you know, he's a noted communist and there is a deep misunderstanding of communism in this island community, uh, which I, I think is fascinating, especially because Mario ends up moving more in that direction the more he learns about the world by way of Naruto. What'd you
0: think? Sorry, hold on. I got distracted because I had written down, <laughs> I was trying to prepare for what you had we're starting to say, and then I got distracted by eating babies. And I'm like, where did this idea of eating babies I come from? I want to from? talk <laughs> about
1: that. I looked up that, I looked that up too, and it's horrible, but I get it. Like, I get it. And you have to imagine in this period of sort of 1970s, right? Uh, kind of between 1950s and 70s, that this myth is actually something that it, they're still kind of latched onto. And, uh, you know, it likely. Comes from the Russian famine of 1921 22. Uh, You know, five million people uh, reportedly died in this famine. Um, And there are many reports of cannibalism that come that just sort of sprung up uh, across the region, across the period as they're struggling with food. And that became a central tenet, not of the famine, but of the communists who live predominantly in the region. Linking political ideology with global reality, uh, I think, is a is is a funny mark of humanity. And yet here we are.
0: I wonder what <coughs> people will say about the pandemic of 2020 yeah. in uh, give it 30 years. <laughs> yeah, right. 30, 80, 100 years. Yeah. Right. What What is that gonna What is that gonna look like? Uh, it, you know what, what myths? What myths <laughs> will people say about right, us? <laughs> right. Um, Holy cow.
1: Well, I I do. I think it's absolutely fascinating that they they made it such a comic kind of of line that these characters who were, um, they always put that in the mouths of the people who were either, um, politically quote wrong, evil doers, nefarious. You know, creatures or uh, uneducated, right? Naive. Yeah, right. Uh, that, that, yeah. That's where those myths come from, and uh, and I think it's great that we actually get to see Mario transcend uh, the belief system of the island as he learns more, and that's that's you know that's great. Well, we and that's, for that. that's
0: what makes the film right yeah. because we get because I mean, essentially, Naruto leaves and he kind of falls off the wagon. Mm-hmm. He essentially kind of becomes i mean he still has his passion and stuff but when he reads that article about Naruda and it, he's like you know the, an island of simple people what i think was great about the way that it it comes to the resolution is after he reads that and he goes to Naruda's house to pack up the stuff that Naruda's secretary has asked them to ship back secretary is rude too
1: come on that's just she's just rude cold
0: I did not she care for her. Cold. We only she meet her not. in a letter, and I still don't care for her at all. She was very, very cold. Mm-hmm. Clearly never met these lovely, simple no. people. <laughs> <laughs> but she, but this is where Mario finds the recorder, hears himself in that in that recording that uh, Neruda did with him, which is very sweet, and gets the idea. It's almost like the rebirth of that. And this is really kind of the climax of the film as he decides, I'm going to record things for neruda and he takes the recorder around and records the beautiful things Mm -hmm. and he has that line later when you left here i thought you'd taken all the beautiful things away with you but then he realizes that there are always these beautiful things and this is the this is what i think mario learns and this is why he's able to make that transition to the poet the revolutionary that we have at the end because now he's like seeing these beautiful things he's recording them he's he's I mean, it's just like the sound of the wind, the sound of the waves, the sound of the the bushes. And I, I think that it's just such a beautiful sequence as he goes around with the recorder capturing these moments.
1: Yeah, I, I do, too. I think he's I think it's just terrific. And uh, I, I think it's important to note their editing choices. Right. The way they cut that last sequence together, uh, it's a little bit out of order. We see him and, and yeah. I think, you know, used well. Right. We see him recording oh, all of right, these wonderful right. pieces um, and we kind of know what he's doing. Right. We get this great sequence of of his postman boss helping him wire all the m- equipment to a big battery or something. And so he can he can do all this field recording. Um and, and it doesn't play out, like, I, even though I, I know how it's going to work, I, it doesn't play out in my head the way I expect it to play, or, or it doesn't play out on film the way I expect it to play out in my head. Uh, it, it's all kind of backwards, and the reward is stronger as a result of it, right? The act of watching Neruda listen to this. Finding that Mario has actually been killed by, you know, uh, his efforts to be a voice of growth and change and of the party, um, I, I think is really powerful. It also brings us back to kind of the purity of Neruda that we got to know in the beginning, right, that that he's fallen off the wagon. And all we know is, you know, the stories of Neruda, um, ignoring the fact that he was with these people for so long Um But he comes back to the island with intention, right? He comes back to the island uh, to experience these people again, and uh, hearing that voice, I love kind of, and and I'm sure I'm overinterpreting, but I love the way he plays that um, that that journey, sort of home, if home is where his heart is. Um, it, It is beautiful watching him listen to these sounds.
0: It's 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 reconnecting with that experience, but it's also. Re or it's it's also realizing that he has made this big change in this particular person, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like he's responsible. It's like that moment where he realizes this journey I had that I didn't think too much of clearly had big impact on you and has changed your life and it's pushed you into something. And uh I, I just feel like the last moments of the film we have with uh Don Pablo as he's standing down there on the beach looking out into the sea and you just get these, these shots of, you know, kind of a, a closer shot, and then just a really wide shot where he's just this little dot on the shore. I, I just felt like, you know, this was that moment of realization where it's like, I've I've changed this person's life. Uh, you know, there's there's been something of me here mm-hmm. that I didn't realize was here. Um, but I, I just, I don't know, I felt like there was a, just this powerful moment there and i love the way that uh that our actor played it and i'm totally blanking on his name right now Philippe noir noire is that how, if that's noir, how you noir, want to say noir, it these french names man
1: <laughs> uh, uh okay so let's talk then uh just a little bit about getting it made can we
0: Yeah, uh, I already mentioned this was really a passion project for Massimo uh, Troisi. He had bought the rights to this book, which was itself an adaptation by uh, the filmmaker from a 1983 film called Burning Patience, which is a title. uh, Burning Patience is a quotation from Neruda quoting Rimbaud, at dawn armed with the burning patience, we shall enter the splendid cities. It's it, the story is essentially a similar thing, except in in that particular film and subsequent book, it all takes place in Chile. It takes place in an island off Chile instead of uh, the postman being a forty year old man. It's a teenager. And so it's definitely a little different. Um, but Massimo had been passionate about this story since the early '80s, and then he'd been an Italian actor uh, for quite a while. Very popular, he had uh, kind of been in an Italian version of Saturday Night Live in the '70s. A bunch of movies, very humorous. In fact, he's like Chevy he Chase. Actually he's like a Chevy Chase, right? He also, he was in a movie with Roberto Benigni who we're talking about next week, a very popular uh, film, just a very kind of funny guy. And so it was a, a kind of a little bit of a shift. I mean, I'd say less Chevy Chase, more Steve Martin maybe. Yeah, 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 That's better. That's better. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but he always had poor health. He had rheumatism as a kid and that, uh, his heart was just really weak. And so he wanted to make this film, but he knew he was like, you know, I'm not quite sure I can hold up. I, I, and so he talked to, Michael Radford, he'd seen his film Another Time, Another Place, and said, this might be a guy to co-direct it with me, or at least help me with it. Um, he asked Radford, uh, he sent him the script, and Radford didn't like it, but he loved Troisi's passion, and so he ended up rewriting the script with, um, with uh, what's her name, Anna, is it Anna uh, Pavignano, mm-hmm. who was Massimo uh, Troisi's ex-girlfriend. They, Can uh, he, you and imagine she, I, I don't know how <laughs> that ended up happening. I'm very curious. But uh, Radford wrote the script with her, rewrote it with her, changed the location. This was a lot of the big shifts. And this is why Naruto fans are like, this is nothing co- close to the truth. They changed the location from Chile— uh, in the 80s to italy in the 50s they changed mario to this 40 year old postman and they wanted it to be a little more magical and i think that's why they shifted all of that and it, it made less sense with Naruto's real life but again they weren't worried about that like Naruto fans mm-hmm. are worried um, but uh, troisi His doctor had said, you need a heart transplant. You can't wait. And he said, I have to do this. I don't want to die and not have this done. And so he put that off, and they went into production. A week after filming, he collapsed, and Radford halted the movie. But Troisi insisted we need to keep going, and so Radford relented, which later he admits was selfish and was upset that he had made that decision because Troisi could only work an hour each day due to his heart condition, and um, he'd he'd film a scene, one take, maybe two. the The big saving grace, two big saving graces for the film, he had a stand in that looked so like him. That he he did a ton of the movie, stuff filmed from the back, everything that was distant, all the shots on the bike riding up and down the hill. Um, and Troisi also recorded all of his dialogue early on, just in case he died, so that he had, so they had all of that. And, uh, you know, it's just like he knew that he needed to get this out. And he even said to uh, Michael Radford, who uh, said this, um uh Radford said, he said, look, I'm really sorry not to have given you my best, but I promise you the next five I will. Radford said, I just burst into tears because I knew this guy was in for it. The next day, Troisi said to his family, Radford is so sensitive. I was talking to him and he started to cry. I think we made a really good movie. And then, you know, they finished production. And like 12 hours later, he was at his sister's house uh, sleeping and he had a heart attack and died.
1: And but that trust- is a best picture story.
0: That is the best picture story. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's just crushing. uh, Just
1: hearing you go through it, and I've already read it, and I am crushed. That experience about, you know, because this is so much a story of a character who is being sort of unlocked by the material that he's experiencing by way of his sort of vessel through Neruda. It's also Massimo being so transcendently unlocked by the material of the script that he's shooting. Like the parallel is too good for me not to choke
0: up just a bit. It's too good. Yeah, right, right. Absolutely. It's it's incredibly touching. It's powerful stuff. When you hear these stories, it's like, oh, I get it. He he was as taken by the passion and the love and the the kind of butterfly rebirth of this character as Mario. And I think that's uh, really powerful to kind of see that it affected him so much that he had to just do it. He couldn't stop, and it basically killed him, I guess you could say.
1: Well, and that's why even with just, you know, 14 credits, film credits, uh, well, I guess that's not true, 14 credits, but in- including television, film and television credits, still thousands of people show up at, at his, you know, funeral.
0: Like he's yeah. he
1: was, uh, ended up, because of stories like this, ended up
0: beloved. Very much a national treasure. I mean, he's co-credited as director in the Italian release mm-hmm. of this film. And I, I just think that speaks to how beloved he was how much everybody uh just really kind of uh respected the the story the the passion that he had for it and i mean uh, obviously harvey weinstein loved that too because he wrote that uh as much as he could in all the marketing which is a little gross when you think about it but i mean that also is the nature of these artists telling stories i mean obviously massimo wanted to get this story out otherwise he wouldn't have pushed himself to to go through all of that Michael Radford, a British director, uh, Philippe Noiret, a French actor, a lot of other Italian uh, people. It Very much was kind of a, a, a love of, of a variety of people. Michael Radford, though, he's a director. I mean, I don't know much of him other than 1984. Like, I've never seen another time, another place. Have you seen much of his? I
1: have seen The Merchant of Venice. Uh, w- this was the Al Pacino, uh, Joseph Fiennes uh, uh, version of it, and and. You know, if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna go down on film as Shylock, you know, if you if you want to, then Al Pacino is <laughs> gonna gonna put be the guy to put that in, um, put that on celluloid. I have not seen a lot of Michael Radford. Oh, and 1984. I have, of course, I've seen 1984. John Hurt.
0: Yeah, that's it. Like yeah. that's all I know is 1984 and this. Yeah. I, I'm just not very familiar with Radford's work. I know he was uh, he's a British filmmaker, but he was born in India, and uh, I just I just don't know much about him. Um, so, I, you know, I and it's interesting because a film like this, it it didn't give him. A huge directing, like, he didn't do a whole lot after this. Like, his next film wasn't for four more years. And it was a film called Bee Monkey, which I am also very unfamiliar with. Uh, It doesn't look like The Merchant of Venice. It hasn't crested the six-star rule. No,
1: it has not. I wonder what it is that IMDB and I agree on his top four only because I haven't seen any others like and I haven't seen another time, another place. But Il Pastino, 1984, The Merchant of Venice are three of his top four and I've seen them. Yeah. So um, there's something something hot about the algorithm uh, there.
0: It's got to be a rule. Well, and it's just, I mean, he's got so few films, you know, and nothing that's really, nothing that stands out. So it's interesting to see a director like him who uh, takes on a project like this. I just feel like he was there to direct the film only because Troy Easy couldn't and because, uh, you know, because Troy Easy liked what he did in another time, another place. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I just don't like I don't have a sense that there's much here that Radford uh, did. Yeah.
1: Well, and I wonder, I, I feel like I, I have no sense of Radford as a, um, uh, a, as any sort of auteur, right? Like, I, I don't have any memory right. of anything. Like, what would the parallel be between uh, Venice and this one? I I don't, I don't feel it. Um, I am curious to see Flawless, though, right? This, this sort of um, pre-Christopher Nolan, uh, Michael Caine um i i have i have memories of him but it's all been washed away since he started working with christopher nolan so <laughs> uh i i am i think that would be an interesting watch i can't i sort of can't believe i haven't seen it it's kind of right up my alley
0: yeah uh, Diamond, Demi Moore, michael kane this is yeah. this was definitely kind of in a period where uh, i think to me was not doing as much uh, m- more focused on motherhood and uh yeah so i don't know i I don't know. I was I, I was thinking it was a different flawless, but uh, yeah. so I yeah. Yeah. What do you think of Noire?
1: I love Noire. And you know what? It, it's such a great casting because he actually he carries the Neruda look too. like he just he he sort of nails it. And the performance is fantastic. I love watching him dance with this with this woman that he's living with that, you know, we know only by Wikipedia is his, you know, reportedly is the woman he was having an affair with um, as his marriage is crumbling apart elsewhere. Like this is um, it. it's not. It's not great, but I still love the experience of watching him carry uh, the Naruda vibe through this film. I think he's terrific. I think he's terrific.
0: He's magical in the role. Yeah. I really think he's great. I, I know very little of his work other than Cinema Paradiso. That's yeah. the only other thing I think that I've seen him in. And uh, But I, I think he's got... Just an amazing face, and playing Naruda, I like. I feel like he embodies the character really, really well, um, and I think that uh, you know the the only other. I mean, I've only seen Naruda on film twice. I think this, and then the the Pablo Larraín film, Naruda. Mm-hmm. And that also was—I mean—that's a Chilean film played by a Chilean, and I think uh, that Neruda also does a great job. But it's—I I think that both of them bring a lot to the role. I—I I, I feel like between the two performances, um, I think there's some some great stuff there. Yeah, yeah.
1: And of course, we have Beatrice, the mm, love yes. interest, the brief love interest who becomes wife, who and mother, uh, and um, the object of Mario's. Uh, affections. I think she is also terrific.
0: She's great. She does a, a a solid job here. I mean, I I don't think it's a huge role, but I think there's enough of her presence there that she stands out as somebody very interesting. Um, you know, she's she is somebody who I haven't seen a lot of, but she was a cigar girl, and the world is not enough. Um, so I, oh, she's funny. been in a Bond movie. I don't know. Uh I don't know what else. Uh, like I just I'm not familiar with her work. She's very busy though. Yeah. Fascinating. Very busy Italian actress.
1: Uh and we've already name-dropped uh the the auntie Donna Rosa played by Linda Morietti, who is just delightful and funny. Yes. Uh character. Yeah. Uh you want to talk about music? You brought you brought it up oh, earlier. Oh,
0: Pete. Oh, Pete. I love this score. Louise Bakilov wrote i think just uh, something that fits so well with neruda poetry i just think there's a magic to it it's just a romance it's just this sensual nature to it it's just it just fills your heart with love I, i love listening to this score i'm a huge fan of the soundtrack too listening to the poetry uh you know stings reading is my favorite of all of them but i i just think there's some great opportunity to kind of listen to that but aside from that just listening to this score i just i feel it fits so well with everything going on here it's kind of the passion the emotion the the tragedy everything just works really beautifully
1: i think so too it is one of those there there is another score that this fits perfectly for with for me it's a howard shore score and uh it is the score to uh alec baldwin meg ryan film prelude to a kiss do you remember this movie 1992 do do remember that movie. I can't remember the score. I don't think I've listened to it. Do you know what? You've just heard it, essentially, in Il Postino. <laughs> it, it is the American sort of version of Il Postino. It's the same—it uh, is very same vibe, and it also suffers the very same curse, which is um, a main sort of love theme that is repeated often throughout the film. Like, all of the sort of interstitial, transitional location moments are are sort of punctuated by this—, uh, um, this um, what's it called the the instrument with the oh, buttons and the keys true. what's it called the, the organ or the the,
0: uh, the accordion the accordion Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, sort organ. Of, yeah, they're walking around, it's sort of yeah.
1: punctuated by this
0: accordion
1: uh theme, main theme and it's lovely and beautiful and I love listening to it just in and of itself. But in the movie, it's used heavily. And yeah. um and, and so I, I have this desire to have more themes. Like give me just some more variety. I, I think it's um I think it's great. Bacalov, Louis Bakalov, fantastic, uh just short. I don't
0: know if I have that issue with I know, it. Like, I know you I, don't. I, think it's, I get it. I think it's, I think it's great. Um, but it's funny It's funny that you mentioned that. When you said that about Prelude to a Kiss, the score that immediately came to my mind that I think ha- has that problem incredibly is uh, Last of the Mohicans. I think yes. it's a great score, a great theme, but it's like, it's on constantly. Give me some more yes. music, well, not just that same and piece. And that
1: movie is plagued by having uh, a very long runtime. And so... <laughs> It's. It, that, yeah, it doesn't help. Does not help. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's talk just a little bit about award season, shall we?
0: Academy Awards. We already ran through the best picture list or nominees for best picture. Braveheart won. Um, Massimo was nominated for best actor, but lost to a very big performance. Nicolas Cage and Leaving Las Vegas. I, You know, I think that's a justified yep. win. I yep. think Nicolas Cage was great there. Mel Gibson was nominated for Best Director. Uh, You know, just as a side note, Pete, this was the first Academy Awards that you and I watched together. Oh, I just have to to point that out. Yes, at Lori's house. Fantastic. Yes. There you go. Mel Gibson won Best Director, uh, not Michael Radford, which makes sense, I think. I don't think Michael Radford's direction, uh, as we said, there's not anything there that really stands out as being special. Best adapted screenplay um, was nominated but lost to *Sense and Sensibility*, and I have to say, absolutely justified. Yep. And I also have to say, Emma Thompson's uh, speech is still, I think, one of the best speeches I've seen at the Oscars, where she did it in the style of Jane Austen. Fantastic! She's, um, She's best original, good. yeah, worth it. She is incredible. Worth it. Best best original dramatic score. It did win, so Bakalov proved uh, that I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs>
1: I could be right and not I, and or wrong I'm and just, still like it.
0: Yes, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, it's totally fine. Um and then this was interesting about know, the David Di Donatello Awards, which is basically the Italian Oscars, just to get an idea. Um it did win for best editing over there. The film lost to La Scuola. Uh, but it was nominated for best film, nominated for best music, but lost to L'America, nominated for best supporting actor, Philippe Noiret, but lost to Giancarlo Giannini in Come Due Cocodrilli. Um Massimo was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Marcello Mastroianni in According to Pereira. And the cinematography was nominated, but lost to L'America. And I, I you know it makes me wonder if if they're also like, you know, it's it's a it's a good film. But it's not the best film. Mm-hmm. It's not the best performance, um, you know. But, man, that editing. I, yeah. don't, I don't know what <laughs> right. to think of it. <laughs> all
1: right. Well, how, then, did all of this uh, notoriety and marketing help at
0: the box office? Well, Radford's film cost $3 million to make, which is about $5.2 million in today's dollars. The film first had its release in Italy on September 22nd, 1994, before coming to the States. Miramax released the film domestically and as such, put a lot of marketing into it, as we've said. The film was released June 16, ninety five, opposite Batman Forever, Pocahontas, and The Incredibly True Adventures of Two Girls in Love. Guess which movie was number one? Not this one. But for a film that only opened on 10 screens versus Batman's 2,842, this film did well for itself, coming in in spot 13. And if you look at the weekend average, it came in in spot two, right behind Batman Forever. So there. That's right, Miramax. Anyway, the film went on to earn $21.8 million domestically and another $50,000 internationally, giving an adjusted gross of almost $37.9 million in today's dollars, which made it the highest-grossing foreign film in the U.S. at the time. That leaves it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $303,000. Wow. But if you take out the $7 million that Miramax spent on its uh, <laughs> Oscar campaign, probably in the red.
1: Not, not as good. Fascinating. <laughs> that is really interesting. Yeah, uh, ten screens. Oof! Well, yeah. uh, delightful. Uh, I think it's a delightful movie. Uh, I'm super uh, thrilled that we have it uh, available to us in the series, uh, and it's a it's a welcome reprieve from last week. Bergman. <laughs> indeed, indeed,
0: it is. I think we no should cries, please. no whispers. In
1: this no, cr- no cries, no whispers, please. I think we should take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flickchart, you'll uh, be taken straight to this movie in the flickchart catalog, where you can add it to your
0: list and see how it
1: stacks up
0: against ours. All right. First up, we have Il Postino, the postman versus the birdcage. Um, I will
1: take the postman. Yeah, I will
0: too. The postman or time crimes. Time crimes. <laughs> oh, time crimes. Yeah. The Postman or Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead, indeed. The Postman or In the Mood for Love. Mm. In the Mood for Love. In the Mood for Love. The Postman or Dark City. Dark City. Dark City. The Postman or The Departed. The Departed. Weird. The Departed. The Postman or The Natural. Um. mm -hmm. The Natural. The natural. I'm surprised you had to pause and think there. I know. The postman or high noon. Um, high noon. High noon. The postman or creep show. <laughs>
1: uh, I might need you to lead me through this one. What are you creep are you show? creep, creep show? show, baby, all the way. Okay, creep <laughs> all the creep way. Show it is.
0: Well, that puts the El Postino right in the middle of our list. Uh, we may end up having that as a, as a block. Well, that'll be an interesting block right next to the birdcage. It's landed in spot 232 out of 464.
1: 232 out of 464. Fascinating. Yeah, straight
0: it, up 50%. Uh, it,
1: it did better on, on my list by a bit, uh, but I'm surprised that, that we agree with me on this one. How would it do on your list?
0: <laughs> uh, it did better on mine, too. Uh, it landed in spot 780 out of 4450, which is about an 82%. Oh, it did much better on your list
1: than mine. It's, it came in at, uh, at 525 out of 1462, which is a 64%. If I go by the algorithm uh, here, then on Letterboxd.com slash The Next Reel, I should be giving this a three-star, which I think is uh, too low. Not sure by how much. Is it three and a half? Is it four stars?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I had a three and a half to four star time with it.
0: <laughs> well, it's four stars for me with a heart. I mean, it's, it's definitely I think a it's heart, a very sweet down, film. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a very sweet film. I think there's a lot of magic to it. It's very simple. I don't think I don't think it's something that sticks very well. But I, when I watch it, I just am delighted from start to finish. So it's, it's I'd still say it's a safe four. Stars yeah, I'm going to give it four stars because of your enthusiasm. <laughs>
1: okay, <laughs> that's how much I care about the the purity of our data. <laughs>
0: That's right. That's right. All <laughs> Fantastic.
1: right. So that is Il Postino, the postman. Where do we go from here?
0: Well, we're going to be riding the 90s Miramax train right into 1997. We're going to be looking at Life is Beautiful, La Vita e Bella. Roberto Benigni's film uh, has become kind of controversial. I'm really curious to revisit that one and chat about it with you um, because there's a lot to chat about with that one. I am. Are we going to do
1: that that bonus episode where we talk for an hour about his experience at the Oscars?
0: <laughs> I just feel like I think we, we could, could just do a I'd take like to the do the recording of that and just release it on its own right, as its own episode. We're going to
1: do a <laughs> a movies by minute episode series, mini series where we do 1 minute for each minute of Benini's Oscar experience. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> right. Amazing. Absolutely. When the movie ends, the conversation begins.
0: Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always do it. Weirdly,
1: Amazon giveth quickly this week. Uh, the, the one stars mm, boil right to the top. Uh, I'd like to go first, if I may. <laughs> Please. Uh, this is uh, from user uh, Mikhail, we'll say, uh, who says, one star, hail, comrade. Uh, This movie boils down to how wonderful some communists are and how bad most others are. If the people that made this C blank blank P were proud (gasps) of this film, they should have mentioned what it really was in descriptions online and on the film cover. If you get all warm feeling thinking of Stalin, you'll love this movie. (laughs) And so six people found this helpful, which I find uh, amazing because we don't know if he's talking about uh, crap or carp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I I didn't feel like this was a propaganda movie. I felt like this was uh, uh, not even close to that. But I guess, you know, it is what it is. Did you find some good uh, propaganda reviews?
0: I don't know if it's propaganda. I think I just am dealing with people who are very confused today all right i've got two for you oh, Pete. the a first double one feature. Mm-hmm. a double feature the first one that's because this first one is very short the first one from amazon customer gave it one star who said this book is boring <laughs> thank you amazon customer <laughs> movie, thank you though. oh <laughs> well, maybe they opened it the case and they're looking at it like there's not a lot of words here what? <laughs> <laughs> there's just a big is this circle like a picture I don't get it. Disc for the book uh, the second one is from Trip17, who had this to say, One star. The only reason I'm giving one star is the freaking price of this DVD. Can someone please explain to me how this DVD is priced $731.26? Was that a typo? I realize the movie is fantastic, but unless the disc itself is made of solid gold, I find it hard to believe that this is being priced at almost thousand dollars, and no one has mentioned that in their reviews. Are people actually paying these exorbitant amounts for classic DVDs these days? I think not. I want to buy the DVD, but for a regular price, like $15 to $20 max. Anyone have any pointers about this? Thanks. <laughs> I, wow.
1: I just want. I just want to buy it at that price just to feel (laughs) what that'd be like what would that be like especially because like the other format that isn't dvd is audio cassette and the audio cassette version is 102 dollars and 55 (laughs) cents why would you buy that solid gold baby
0: (laughs) solid gold (laughs) anyway thanks amazon you know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's
1: the last time I read a paper book? It's been, like, decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet,
0: Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore, either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com audible. It's the way to go. All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 10, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations.
1: Ten seasons of this. I should be a pro by now.
0: First up, David Fincher. This was a member bonus. Gone Girl. Aquatic Killers. Mm, certainly not tentacles. <laughs> oh, In the Heart of the Sea. Nice. Here's another member bonus. John Le Carre.
1: Uh, uh The Russia House. Oh, I love that score so much.
0: Here's a tough one. Soviet science fiction. Ooh, uh, I have no idea. All of them? Not quite. Just Dead Mountaineers Hotel. Awesome. We have covered lots of great movies that started out as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Ivanhoe, Conan the Barbarian, Eight Million Ways to Die, The Hot Rock, Born on the 4th of July, American Psycho, The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, The Mist, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible.
1: Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content.
0: Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it and I have read hundreds of books through it.